And I think that this is true in cryptocurrency. I think this is true broadly in Web3, that really what sits at the center of the ideology of these folks is a resentment of older money, right? A resentment of the the very ultra wealthy, not a belief that there shouldn't be ultra wealthy people, but a belief that the only reason that that they, the bearers of this this ideology, are not ultra wealthy is because of the state. And that if it weren't for the state, they too would be among the ranks of the ultra wealthy. That's very much, I think, who this book is for and who the society of the network state is for. This week on the show, we're going to talk about a new book from Balaji Srinivasan called The Network State. It's a Web3 political treatise with a crash course in history and social theory, making both accessible to an audience more typically focused on tech finance and business. Srinivasan is the former chief technical officer for Coinbase and a self-described angel investor. Coinbase is the largest cryptocurrency exchange in the United States. And you might have heard or seen a little bit about them in the news this past week because the SEC recently brought an insider trading lawsuit against a former Coinbase product manager, the first suit of its kind. Uh, Srinivasan and his brother, uh, back in 2007, founded a biotech startup called Council, uh, which sold the type of direct consumer tests that are meant to tell people whether or not they carry genetic markers for uh, certain diseases like cancer. Uh, he has managed an investment firm, uh, or at least managed the funds of an investment firm. What comes through, I think, across the body of work is you know somebody who is an incredibly politically aware person trying to make others in a field where people tend to lack that awareness, you know, care and invest themselves in what I think is ultimately neo-reactionary uh, ideology. Uh, but we can get into that a little bit more as we go. So he really sounds like, you know, someone who has his hands and quite a few different things that could, you know, easily make him a lot of money. Right. And, and he wouldn't mind if we thought of him as, a tech renaissance man, I'm sure, you know, and, and I think that 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 fits, you know, he has his degrees are in, um, you know, electrical and mechanical engineering. Right. Uh, but yet he's a cryptocurrency prognosticator. Uh, you know, he's he's very familiar with the world of business and finance as well. Um, you know, I, I think that in a lot of ways, uh, Balaji Srinivasan kind of embodies the age. You know, we, we talk about a lot of characters on this show who we may not be very fond of, but we're not unaware that people like this, you know, I think in kind of uh, the same way, obviously on a much greater stage, but in the same way that like Joel Greenberg seems like the type of person who will inherit the earth, right? I think Balaji Srinivasan will be telling the Joel Greenbergs of the world where to go here in you know, our lifetime.
The network state, which came out earlier this year, describes how one might form a new country on the internet. And that's, uh, you know, to put it pretty simply, uh, we're going to discuss the ideas in this book, um, you know, from a place of sincerity, as we often try to do with things we we struggle with. Um, and I think that a lot of people who gravitate towards our show are like that, right? Deeply skeptical of the techno-libertarian ideology uh, that I think is embodied in the network state as an idea. But we think it's a mistake to discount, you know, these ideas out of hand. Yeah, while some may hope that the state's regulatory apparatus will be sufficient to interrupt the rising tide of DeFi and crypto and Web3, uh, we think there's reason to be as skeptical of that assumption as we might be of Srinivasan's ideas. So first, what exactly is the network state? It's what the regulators were afraid of when Facebook tried to start its own cryptocurrency in Libra. It is, in many ways, the, the greatest, deepest fear of savvy people in the regulatory apparatus in the United States. Using that analogy of like Facebook and Libra, you know, so a network state is first just a social network like Facebook and Discord and Twitter. What it becomes, right, in the evolution of social network uh, to network state is the creation of, of what Srinivasan encourages his readers to call a startup society. Uh, so we have, you know, the idea of like the startup business and then we have the idea of a society. <laughs> and um, what Srinivasan's done here is to try to merge these things, right? The sort of like ideological con conceptual framework of a tech startup into, you know, a society. And that ultimately what is formed is, is a network state and a network state has these qualities, right? Which is, First, a, a national consciousness. Okay, so we're importing nationalism into the next iteration of the state. It has uh, a cryptocurrency, and then there's also some plan for land acquisition, right? Um, land that would not initially be contiguous. We're starting on uh, a social network as a platform, but that would over time become contiguous, right? That land acquisition would be a piece of Srinivasan's imagined network state. There's also this idea of a one commandment, uh, a feature of the network, uh, a belief that sets a network state apart from what Srinivasan imagines will be a world of competing network states, you know, a world of startup societies, largely beginning online and then becoming increasingly more terrestrial in its scope. And so that, like, put really, really simply, you know, is is the conception of the network state. It's interesting that kind of the final stage in the creation of the network state is diplomatic recognition. Um, it's not sort of the delegitimizing and the pulling down of the state as it exists today or of the international institutions that imbue it with legitimacy. No, Srinivasan imagines the network state gaining diplomatic recognition and then being legitimized by these sort of existing establishment institutions, um, which I think as we're going to move along here, we'll see that in a lot of ways, the network state as an idea tries to navigate between, you know, anarchism and statism. 
right, and try to find sort of this middle path through libertarian technocracy. So the network state is a social network with a cryptocurrency that gains recognition from other states and international institutions. Sounds simple enough. But if the earth is to be inherited by these types of societies, then how will that happen and you know, what will they do next? Well, and this is a preoccupation of really the first half of Srinivasan's book. He doesn't kind of get into depth on the network state itself until the last chapter. But I think that the most troubling thing uh, about his approach or his answer to that question of you know, how the network state arises and what happens next you know, is, is difficult to reject. Okay. I think first and foremost, this is because Srinivasan views existing states, particularly the United States and its attendant institutions and establishment as illegitimate, morally bankrupt, uh, and most importantly, maybe in decline. Um, he sort of regularly notes the way in which the West broadly, but particularly the United States has faced stagnation in terms of production uh, he frequently observes that our ability to just build things and construct infrastructure is significantly worse than it was even, you know, 50 to 70 years ago. But I think important to note here is that this is what he's imagining as the landscape into which the network state will emerge, right? That as this process of declension and states and international institutions will open the space for startup societies and then ultimately network states to gain legitimacy. And I think it's important to keep in mind here that like this is a lot of what's in kind of the first part of this book is relatively basic stuff uh, for people who have taken an upper level history or poli sci class. Uh, but that's not really a good reason to deride what he's doing here. You know, we might ask instead, you know, what's being done to uh, present a competing view of history and political theory to the same group of people by those of us who are skeptical of Web3 and cryptocurrency. Okay. So having established for the tech nerds that societies are a thing uh, and that real people live in them, how does Srinivasan apply history? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a that's a good way to sort of think about the beginning of this book, you know, is that if you know, if you already believe that, you know, history is important to think about, that it's kind of subjective and open to interpretation, um and that ultimately you can't uh, invent invent your way around having a society and a government. Relatively standard things for I think a lot of people to accept, but I think in Silicon Valley and the big tech industry, there is kind of this ideology that technology and these types of advances will alleviate or allow us to escape any social strain that we might actually face. So along with this, you know, the entire second chapter of Srinivasan's book is about history and interpreting history, explaining that you need a conception of history in order to propose a new society, right? That, that what 
really makes national consciousness and nation states cohesive is that they make an argument about their history. Okay. And I think that this is pretty interesting to get from the tech crowd who oftentimes live in a world of objective facts, right? And oftentimes imagine that there is an objective history of anything, right? Of, of the United States, of the world, right? Uh, of capitalism. Um, and, and that's not the position that Srinivasan takes in this, right? That you have to make a subjective argument in order to legitimize the historical origins of, of your country. But, and I think that this is... <laughs> where that objectivist view of history sort of remains in what Srinivasan writes here, which is that he suggests he suggests that cryptocurrency, or to be more specific, blockchain technology, cryptographically uh, protected blockchain technology, will be used to create a historical record, a historical record that Srinivasan imagines as being objective, right, as being sort of more holistic and perfect than a historical record that's maintained by victors and the documents they write and that they manage to store and pass down through generations, that the blockchain uh, presents a solution to the subjective history, right? And so obviously the, the network state with its command of blockchain technology, with its cryptocurrency as its central mechanism for, for finance, uh, can also use that same technology to... Uh, document historical events. What's interesting is you're sort of going through this book, and in fact, it gets a mention in the footnotes in the second chapter, is is that there is this kind of Isaac Asimovian psychohistory that kind of sits at the center of, of what he's imagining here. So in the Isaac Asimov series called Foundation. Great series, by the way. Awesome books. And, and it's, yeah, it's, there's several volumes of that series, right? It begins with a scientist who has invented a mathematical solution or formula for predicting the behavior of large populations. This Asimovian psychohistory, right, is something that I think we've kind of been dreaming of in the academic field of history, but I also think just sort of like socially as a species, right? We kind of crave this, this objective understanding of the past and to that end, that if we can objectively understand the past and how it functions, then we ought to be able to predict our future. This is essentially what Srinivasan suggests blockchain technology will do. You know, as someone who is not, you know, incredibly well-versed in the crypto world, how does blockchain technology have this sort of historical public ledger? How does it work? You know, at the end of the day, all a cryptocurrency is, all the blockchain is, is an append only distributed ledger, right? You can only make additions to it, right? And it's, it is uh, widely accessible, right? And, and you can only make those additions to it within the constraints set by the protocols, right? Yeah. And there are these, these things called Merkle trees, right? Which allow kind of a range of information to be encoded within the blockchain, okay? And so it's not like we're imagining, you know, uh, someone entering like, like a letter from George Washington into the blockchain. But what you might do is you might take that letter and you might be able to store the metadata about that photo or letter or 
historical document um, using a Merkle tree, uh, which would then be encrypted into your your blockchain append-only distributed ledger. To sort of illustrate how this works, I'll grab the example that Srinivasan reaches for so often in the book, which is the famous photo of uh, Joseph Stalin, who was photographed, uh, you know, in sort of the early days of the Bolshevik Revolution, of his ascension after the death of Vladimir Lenin, uh, with a range of Soviet officials who, by the end of Joseph Stalin's reign, had all been purged by his his pogroms, right? This image was famously doctored by the Soviets over a couple of decades to the point where what had originally been a group photo of Joseph Stalin and his comrades was just a photo of Joseph Stalin because all of the other people had been killed. And what Srinivasan suggests is that uh, if the society had on its append-only distributed ledger the metadata for the original photo, right, then there would be no way 20 years down the line to say that the, the, the later photo was legitimate. Okay. This is just, this is like sort of an example that he, that he often brings up. And I think that this is interesting, right? I don't think there's any reason that you couldn't do that. But what I think it misunderstands, what I think this idea misunderstands is where and when collective understanding is manipulated. Even if, you know, the Soviets had the metadata for the original photo of Joseph Stalin and the Soviet leadership, like stored in some public archive that that people could look at, right? Typically, the verification of documents is not where historical understanding is constructed, certainly not broad, popular historical understanding. I think that we can kind of see this throughout the book, right? Where, um, or even more broadly, we can see it in the text space, where a really interesting question or issue is, is mentioned or addressed, right? Like how do we create an objective history? How do we, how might we verify historical documents in a way that could not be tampered with by authoritarian regimes? And they'll, they'll do that. They'll ask a really interesting question or, or, or point at a really interesting problem, but then they'll, um, you know, come up with, with like a solution that kind of misses where the rub is. And I think that we can see that in a few other places as we go. And this is one of them, right? Which is that, you know, I, I don't think that state propaganda would be meaningfully or significantly hindered or made less effective by the verification of historical documents on an append-only ledger like you might have with blockchain technology. Harkening back a little bit to, you know, what we were doing last winter with um, Seminole County, okay, like organic fresh coin, you know, wasn't like a legitimate like cryptocurrency, basically. I mean, it was an illegitimate, you know, coin offering to the public. And you can identify the wallet. I mean, we identified the wallet, you know, within basically like an, like an evening of research. The privacy angle of cryptocurrency is really interesting to consider in light of the fact that Silicon Valley tech executives and, and higher ups are increasingly moving towards these cryptocurrency startups. And so what we have is, here is really interesting. We have the people who have been the architects and beneficiaries of forking over 
all of our privacy and data and information on the internet for profit, right? Into turning every aspect of our lives into individuated data points that can be condensed and traded on and profited from. And it's the same sort of group of people who's now saying, oh no, let's go over here to these cryptocurrencies because they're so private. You should believe us, the people who just sold all of your information to, you know, the the highest bidder. It's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, we we've seen how many like security breaches there have been, you know, with several different coins. You're you're asking to create, you know, a sovereign entity that people can be a part of that's that would basically be totally run by, you know, private interests. Okay. If you're, if you're really so pro privacy, basically getting everyone to start leaving digital footprints everywhere all the time inside of some kind of sovereign entity that you've made, you know, that's going to become mm-hmm. this, you know, that, 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 that could possibly govern people. I think that this is the right tension to, to key on. And I think that it's it's right where Srinivasan's book, The Network State, intends to intervene. This is what blows my mind is that these these like centrist or right-wing, you know, libertarians in the United States argue that these things are like pro-freedom, pro-liberty. What you're talking about here is kind of the world that Srinivasan lives in, right? There are a lot of people who who are basically anarchists, right? Um, in in the tech world, you know, am- among people who can who would be referred to as libertarians a lot of the time, you know, they have a, a an ideology of the state that is so contemptuous, right? That they essentially, you know, are are, are anarchists of the right. And Srinivasan is trying to sort of like mediate between the status and the anarchists, right? And that's where, where he sort of sees the network state as, as playing. The world in Balaji Srinivasan's view is split between the Chinese Communist Party um, and the New York Times on one side, right? The status, okay? And then the people of the people of the network, right? The, the the people of Bitcoin. Essentially what he's saying is that we have the ideological descendants of liberalism, okay? Who are people of the state, okay? Their status. Um, they believe in reform. They believe that everyone should have a voice, right? In how... We reform the state. It's they who are sort of the the zeitgeist of the West. As we're watching the West decline, right? As we're watching, you know, institutions like the New York Times, you know, flounder through these early decades of the 21st century. And that's, of course, the New York Times as Srinivasan uses it, which is sort of as this uh, simulacrum of, of our society broadly, or at least of its establishment. That as it fails, the ideology of the Chinese Communist Party, right, the ideology of state authoritarianism, state totalitarianism, will increasingly creep in, right? And that we, if we do not intervene, 
right? If we, the people of the network, and he basically includes us among, among them, even on the left, right? But sort of the anti-state people on the left and the anti-state people on the right will have to you, unite with the network state to fend off what will become an increasingly authoritarian West, okay? A, a, a West that takes its example from China. This is the view of the world that Srinivasan sees the network state, the book and the idea as intervening in. Srinivasan sees the tension that you're talking about here, right? Which is this tension between a sort of like corporate led anarchism and state totalitarianism. And through the network state is attempting to articulate a middle way, or at least in his his view. So it's obviously not enough to just come up with an idea for starting a state. You know, there has to be a mechanism for making decisions, for fixing problems, for maintaining society. You know, how is this navigated in Srinivasan's book? Democracy is not mentioned very frequently in this book. And when it is, it's mentioned in these sort of derisive quotation marks. The extent of democracy in the network state is opt-in, opt-out. Listen, the, the whole concept of this is so much about freedom. Like, and because mm-hmm. of that, Srinivasan doesn't have to even use the word democracy because it should be telling as you read this book that this is what it's all about. He shouldn't even have to use the word or tell you that, you know, what he's trying to do is democratizing. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of people who, who would read it that way. I do think that as you look back at the types of things that he's written and said in public over the last 10 years, though, that he has kind of the the Peter Thiel view of it, right? Which is that ultimately, that ultimately democracy, you know, is, is just a, a a cudgel uh, that's used by elites to, you know, to manipulate people and to, you know, hold back the unbridled brilliance and expertise and money-making capacity of anyone who isn't ultra wealthy already. And I think that this is true in cryptocurrency. I think this is true broadly in Web3, that really what sits at the center of the ideology of these folks is a resentment of older money, right? A resentment of the the very ultra wealthy, not a belief that there shouldn't be ultra wealthy people, but a belief that the only reason that, that they, the bearers of this this ideology are not ultra wealthy is because of the state and that if it weren't for the state they too would be among the ranks of the ultra wealthy that's very much i think who this book is for and who the society of the network state is for but let's let's take this this perception of what matters in democracy, what, what is more important than voice, if you would put it in the terms of Srinivasan, which is what we have a democracy, right? That's the ideology of the New York Times is voice, right? That we have a voice in reform, we have a voice in affairs, right? But that what is truly democracy in Srinivasan's view is the ability to exit, right? To leave a society, you know? And he asks the question, well, how do you know if someone has consented to, to be governed by a state? And the answer he gives is, is, is relatively interesting to consider, uh, which is that we can use, once again, the blockchain, uh, smart contracts held and verified on blockchain technology 
um, to to have a social contract, essentially, right? Smart social contracts. And I think that this is another one of these instances where the the issue with the social contract is not that we ha- don't have a way to make verified like agreements between people, right? It's not the con- the technology of the contract that is lacking in determining whether or not people consent to be governed. The problem is determining whether or not people who are born into a system as people ultimately become in societies that exist for any actual length of time, how do we tell if those individuals um, still consent to be governed by the state, right? And this is something that Srinivasan essentially does not answer, right? Because you can't answer it without having some sort of ideology of democracy or being an outright authoritarian. The thing with opting into a society is that the ability to opt out, right, is is oftentimes a lot more complicated than, you know, just leaving, right? And and I think that this is, uh, you know, this is kind of among the issues in this book's treatment of democracy. Um, I also think that there is almost nothing in here about how decisions will be made how society will be maintained after the protocol has been written, after people have opted in, right? There is kind of a vague reference to administrators or to founders. There's nothing in here about how decisions continue to be made, okay? Which I think is really striking that a book that a book that strives to describe a new system of governance, a new system for organizing society, basically can't tell you, you know, who you're supposed to call if nobody picks up your trash in the network state, right? Mm -hmm. Or how you might build a bridge or decide that a bridge needed to be built or figure out who's going to maintain that bridge. This is is either a massive oversight or it's the point, you know? And I think it's, there's this very classic dilemma in anarchism and libertarianism and cryptocurrency in Web3, often you'll watch uh, a startup pitch, right? Maybe at like a crypto com- conference or what have you. And you'll hear a very thoughtful question posed, like, you know, in the instance of the network state, how do we know that a person consents to the government? It's a great question. It's a classic dilemma, something that should definitely be considered in any theory of the state or statecraft. But then you'll hear a proposed solution that sort of fundamentally misunderstands the problem, like as though the the problem of the social contract we talked about is that we can't come up with a secure way to verify the consent of the governed. Um, You know, this fundamentally misunderstands the problem. The, The problem with social contracts is not the literal problem of making a contract, but the abstract problem of measuring the legitimacy of a regime. This is usually where democracy comes in, not because democracy is perfect, but because it's the only imaginable release valve for discontent, aside from authoritarians, aside from tyranny. And this is the most significant failing of the network state. It assumes that there can be no tyranny in a society that that people can opt out of, or to that end, that people can reasonably be expected to just leave a place where their life family and resources are vested. Srinivasan is the son of immigrants 
many of us here in this society are descendant, you know, of immigrants. That history, people who have that history, I think oftentimes it, it simplifies, you know, what goes into leaving, what goes into opting out. And to that end, if we end up in a world of network states where one can opt out and opt in easily, right, where the barrier is so low that you can't, you really can't just leave your network state and go to another one. This doesn't really solve any any social problem, right? It, it, it can't answer any issues, you know, whatever problems there are, you know, with, with democracy, with the state. It's shocking that this book punts on so many of them, you know, because it's one of the very, very few who are kind of willing to articulate a new vision for something different going forward, a real ideology of transformative change. The left is not vested in pulling down states. The, it's largely about reinventing trade unionism, you know, and, and then on the right, we have this, a, a belief that you can just write a protocol for a society that's so good and you can lower the barrier to exit so much that you don't have to have any democratic decision-making because the protocol tells you exactly what society is supposed to do.